thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to The Healthy Shift Worker with your host, Audra Starkey. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Shift Worker podcast. My name is Audra Starkey and I'm here to help you to manage some of the toughest challenges we face whilst working 24-7. I've got a super duper special guest on the podcast today, someone who really gets what it's like to work long and irregular hours and that's chef and clinical nutritionist Samantha Gowing. Sam is based in beautiful Byron Bay in northern New South Wales and is going to chat with us on all things to do with cooking and shift work nutrition. So I'm really excited about this episode. Sam holds a Diploma of Health Science in Nutrition, a Master's in Gastronomic Tourism, and is the founder of Gowing's Food Health Wealth. She's also an ambassador for Endeavour College of Natural Health, which is where I actually completed my nutritional medicine degree just last year. Sam has been cooking since the age of six and now boasts her signature healing cuisine, Surf Spa Food, which is based around the food as medicine philosophy with a contemporary culinary twist. Her unique style has been embraced at health retreats all over the world, including here in Australia, Bali, Sri Lanka, and as far away as Zanzibar in Tanzania. In her spare time, Sam loves to surf, but her uh, proudest achievement to date is the recent launch of her first book, The Healing Feeling, which she self-published herself through her trademark entity, Whole Happiness Publishing. So to tell us more about cooking and shift work nutrition, I'd love to give a warm, healthy shift worker welcome to Sam. Good morning, my time. Hello, Audra. Hello, hello. We're finally, we're finally to air. We've had a few little hiccups, haven't we? Oh, we had a few glitches in the matrix, darling, but we've worked it out and we're here and uh, I've had a good night's sleep, unlike probably some of your listeners, so oh. I'm as calm as a cucumber. Wonderful. Fantastic. That's great to hear. Well, thanks so much, um, you know, for joining me today, Sam. Uh, I first met you, gosh, I think it's a couple of years ago. Uh, now at event on the Gold Coast that you were co-hosting uh, with Marcus Pierce, uh, who's the yes. executive producer of The Couch, uh, ironically. Um, and from memory, that event was called, I think, Exceptional Food, Health and Wealth. And I learned so much from you both over that weekend. So thank you. Oh, that's uh, wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was really insightful, and it was you know I'd heard a lot about you um, before, obviously um, in the media and, and through Endeavour, but it was really nice to to actually meet you in person and, and see you in action. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, that must be coming up to two years now, yeah. I think, isn't it? It's um it's amazing how time you know evaporates like that, but it was certainly a great event, and good on Marcus. Yeah, for, absolutely. For bringing, it all, bringing us all together and, um, you know, three cheers for the work that he does. But uh, oh, totally. it's been a long journey mm. and um, so much has actually changed since we met, I guess, formally way back then at the QT on the Gold Coast. Even the Gold Coast has changed since then. So true, so true. Well, well on that note, I'd love to, you know, hear more about, you know, what you're up to and, and I guess mm. for our listeners to hear more about your story because it sounds as though, yeah. Sam, you started cooking really early early but did you ever imagine that you would actually you know in previously you know run hat winning restaurants around the world along with becoming a nutritionist 
Yeah, look, it's it's been a fascinating journey, so many people say, but um, <laughs> I, I guess I always knew that I'd end up in the restaurant business because I grew up in that. My father had a restaurant um, in, the, in the late 70s in Melbourne, and it was when Melbourne was really going through its gastronomic boom, and he was one of the pioneers of contemporary cuisine, so restaurants were no longer kind of as stiff as they were in the early style and based just on European style, he sort of broke through a paradigm and made a very contemporary kind of LA-style restaurant in the late 70s. So we often say we grew up under the table there, which we did, and falling asleep at the table at, you know, <laughs> midnight and he'd be drinking more cognac and, eat, and smoking way too many cigarettes and all of those hedonistic things people did in the 70s and 80s. So I was always destined for the restaurant industry, but I certainly wasn't destined for nutrition, I can assure you in my late <laughs> and 20s, Audrey. It was very much, um, again, um, with gratitude to my dad, sadly I lost him to cancer in the early 90s and it was during that time of his um, remissions, as there were three of them, that I started to become a lot more interested out of necessity around nutrition and food and healing. And, you know, the two things that really stand out was one, the oncologist had said, no more smoked food for you, Mr. Gowing, and <laughs> more brat muffins, please. And that's really all I can remember. Mm -hmm. um, in my early 20s, you know, during this time, we just bought a Bluestone Hotel in Melbourne called the Grace Darling Hotel and at the age of 24 I became the licensee so I was one of the youngest female publicans in Australia to take on that mantle so I understand shift work from hospitality perspective but it really did ignite my um, my curiosity around nutrition and by the mid-90s toward the end of the 90s I was um, a complete convert. Wow okay mm -hmm. that's interesting the term smoke food well, you know, anything like uh, in those days, you know, smoked salmon was de rigueur on all entree menus in Australia. And so any food that's hot smoked, you know, has the potential carcinogen, including the benzopyrene, that is one of the um, carcinogens in cigarette smoke, which is what sadly got my dad after many, many years of um, professionally chain smoking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anything smoked and infused with, you know, hot smoke has that carcinogenic potential. I'm not saying it causes cancer by any means, but it was really, in his case, it was about minimising the free radical damage mm. um, or any any more external free radical damage because his um, various cancers had really taken hold. It's aspirating what, yeah, yeah. or he yeah. already sort of, you know, had, yeah. Um this is you mentioned um or I probably mentioned about that the hat winning restaurant that you've sort of um mm. run over the years I oh, look I am a self-confessed non-chef um and I've even watched a few seasons of MasterChef I don't really understand what the term even hat winning what does that actually mean Okay so in Melbourne and Sydney and I think now up in Queensland I think you have a Queensland guide that awards hats so the movie industry, obviously, in the States have their Oscars. In Australia, we have our chef hats. Oh, okay. So in the – oh, actually, in the – maybe 1979 to 1980, 81, the Age newspaper created a, the Age Good Food Guide. And I think the first edition was probably in the late – um, 70, something like that. And over the years in the in early days of the of the book, of the guide, as it's um, commonly known, your restaurant, if you were good enough, would be awarded anywhere between one, two and three chef's hats. 
Now, three, to have a three-hat restaurant in Australia to this day is the equivalent of having a five Michelin star restaurant in Europe. So we take them very seriously. In Melbourne, you're awarded, the restaurant is usually awarded the hat, not necessarily the chef. And in Sydney, mm. it's actually different from the Sydney Morning Herald. And I think this has changed now, but in Sydney, the chef would often be awarded the hat and could take that hat, so to speak, to another restaurant. Whereas if you're a chef, hatted restaurateur, then your restaurant has won that hat and our Atrium restaurant of the Grace Darling Hotel was awarded a chef's hat, which is a big deal for a pub. It really mm. wasn't, we, you know, we strove long and hard to do that. But prior to that, when dad was still alive, he had a two and a half hat when they awarded half a hat for good behaviour, I think. <laughs> uh, so let's say almost a three hat restaurant, a fine dining restaurant in East Melbourne. And I did my apprenticeship there on the restaurant floor um, toward the end of dad's life. So as he firstly went into remission with cancer, when I was about 22, I think, I learned the ropes of fine dining on the restaurant floor in a, you know, let's say three hat chef, three chefs hat restaurant. So that was one of the top 50 restaurants of Australia, um, various accolades and probably one of the top seven to 10 restaurants in Melbourne in the 80s as well. So these were the heady days. This was before the fringe benefit tax. And this is when people would go out for lunch and could charge it on the company's expense accounts. And we as waiters, which is what we still are, I guess, would get up to, you know, four or five hundred dollars minimum in in obviously tax declared tips a week which would almost um be double our salary sometimes so oh, wow you know yeah. they were great days these are the days of shoulder pads and lots of smokes oh. and then Darren Hinch sitting around the restaurant table ordering a dozen serves of uh beluga caviar one after each other because he'd won so highly on the 3AW ratings and uh, yeah. yeah. It was an interesting time in Melbourne. Any Melbourne people listening will vaguely remember, you know, the, the really heady days of restaurants, um, pre-Paul Keating's recession that we had to have and the pilot strike that occurred. Mm, yeah, wow. Well, kudos to you to actually, you know, be, uh, um, you know, to be working at that sort of level. It's amazing. I think uh, I think every shift worker listening um, that maybe is always kind of too tired to cook all the time is probably wishing that, you know, every time they come home, you'd be in the kitchen waiting for them <laughs> to cook. But, yeah. But look, as a chef, you know, Sam, you obviously can really appreciate what it's like um, to be a shift worker, you know, having to work long, these long hours, irregular hours, crazy hours, whatever you want to call them. Um, and, you know, even more so for you because, you know, you've obviously – been involved in running your own businesses per se. So how did you go juggling your health and nutrition in the first few years and honestly? Okay, honestly, with coffee, cigarettes and no. lots of vodka um, and pizza and there's a restaurant in Melbourne that is an iconic institute that my brother Chris Gowing and I have been going to since we were kids and that is um, the Supper Inn. And we would go there after restaurant service, which was because it was open till 2 or 3 a.m. and still is. So that was the beginning. And then in the 90s, when I became a lot more um, infatuated with um, what we now call wellness, mm. with my own fitness, and that led to obviously a greater awareness of nutrition, then 
I would actually have a quite a high or rich complex carbohydrate diet, um, which really didn't serve me, I discovered, or my body shape specifically. It helped me get through the long hauls of, you know, 12-hour restaurant days. However, it didn't really serve me um, – I, to put it this way, I'm better off eating a high-protein diet, which it took me a long time to discover. Does that make sense? Mm, absolutely. Yeah, that's before you we had sort of um, yeah embarked on this the studying about nutrition. Yes, obviously. So yeah, wow. Yeah, so I was eating a lot of spaghetti and yep. not <laughs> necessarily with dairy, but I would have you know um, that Italian sort of dish spaghetti aglio aglio. I can't pronounce it. You know, basically olive oil and garlic and lots of basil, thinking that was super healthy. But I was forever expanding. <laughs> <laughs> And I was learning to do, you know, gym work as well. I started weight training and so forth. But I was kind of, I was building size and not losing size. And that um, was a real indicator before I studied it professionally that, that perhaps those kind of foods weren't really great for me. I was maybe burning them off, but I feel much better for eating a higher protein diet, regardless of the shifts that I do. Mm. You know, unlike a lot of your listeners, I don't work through the night. Mm-hmm. But there are times when I fly to other health retreats and so forth and spas and fly long distance. So in that case, you know, obviously there is a little, there's a bit of a different thing. But my days usually entail a 12 to 14 hour working day, which can be anything from, you know, being on my feet all day to traveling to uh, being a a desk jockey like many of us as well. Mm, Yeah. Well, that leads me to my next question, actually, um, because chefs are renowned for being as you said, on their feet all day, um, and like many other uh, shift-working organi- um, industries such as health professionals, they often miss breaks or have limited opportunities to sit down and eat a healthy meal. What advice uh, do you have for our listeners uh, who may be experiencing something like this? I think, you know, it's it's really about planning and I think that if you have access to a blender you're able to make, to pre-prepare, pre-plan soups and obviously liquefy things like smoothies and so forth. So we're lucky now that we can embrace a little bit more liquid nutrition. Mm. And I don't say that that's for everyone. I mean, Mm. I would probably have a smoothie once or twice a week. These days, it's I prefer to eat whole foods. Um, but I think with you know, there's a lot we can do. We can we can freeze soups. They will defrost quite quickly. You know, if you are working through the night when you get home, if you can remind yourself, thanks to your phone, to take it out of the freezer and leave a beautiful hearty pumpkin and ginger soup there, or more of a summer flavour, then that's certainly going to bolster you. And when we're tired. It's easier for us to absorb those nutrients, particularly in soups where they've been pureed and we're having lots of vegetables, rather than obviously waiting for a roast dinner to roll out and that kind of thing. Mm. So I think that's been a godsend. I think freezing things like stock stock cubes um, that you make, you know, making vegetable stock and putting them in ice cubes and and boosting flavor into your food is a great way. Um, buying beautiful bread, slicing it yourself and then freezing it in individual slices so you're not reaching for the old tip-top white high five. <laughs> then you've got, you know, you've got a decent um, a decent bit of bread there when you want to come home to toast up and and uh, if your butter's cold then using a little cheese grater to grate that butter so you're not, you know, 
whacking huge lumps of butter on the bread, that kind of thing as well, you know. I, I'm In the years that I've been practising wellness, which is, I guess, 18 professionally now, I know that most shift workers roll their eyes at me when I used to do corporate health on the factory floor and go, well, you haven't got time to do that. We're too tired. Mm -hmm. So I've tried to simplify it and just go, yes, you can still have, you know, normal food, but buy better quality food and use your freezer as a tool. And I don't really endorse microwaves, but if you're using one, go for it. Otherwise, work out how you can defrost your food effectively and that you've got some nourishment there. So if you leave, you know, a, a canister of a takeaway container of beautiful chicken soup in the fridge to defrost while you do a 12-hour shift, come home take five minutes to heat it on the stove or pop it in the oven to heat up while you're in the shower, you're still going to get the nutrients, you know. We've all got to make these compromises in our working life. Yeah, great, great point. I mean, I'm like you. I'm, I'm certainly not a, an advocate of a microwave. I don't even own one anymore now. Um, but I know that, you know, with our work environment that sometimes it does call for a microwave in order for us to be able to heat our meal of up. Of course. Yeah, so, um, you know, that's that's certainly a, a really good point. And, I th you know, the whole making food from scratch thing can be quite overwhelming at just the thought of that for people when we are tired, we're kind of too exhausted to do anything. But it's a bit of a catch-22, as I think you'd probably agree, by if we eat too much of the high-processed and refined foods, it's actually going to make us even feel even more tired. Oh, look, it does, and I think there's a great way to work that out. As soon as you have a beautiful, fresh juice, wherever you're traveling, you can usually be able to find a, a juice bar these days, which is a godsend. You'll know how good you feel once you scoff that fresh juice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's an instant assimilation, isn't it? And, mm. you know, obviously if it's lots of sugar, then you're going to get that high. But preferably if you're having something like a beetroot, carrot, apple, celery, ginger juice, mm. Most people I know, about 95% of the population, feels so much better quite quickly when they have their juice. They just can't describe it, and it's usually because it's helping them to alkalize. So if we can alkalize our body more often, get more oxygen into our lungs, then those sort of components are the, are the absolute attributes of health and fitness to me. Mm, as opposed to a big heavy meal that's just going to sit in your stomach and struggle to digest and yeah, yeah. That, that's it I mean I understand that a lot of shift workers must be starving when they knock off but mm. they're also exhausted and, mm. and hunger and fatigue do not sleep well together do they you know no. they're Pardon I mean <laughs> yeah exactly I think that you know a full belly and exhaustion does not help you rest either I, I think it's better to go to bed hungry and time, let your body rest, and then obviously replenish with a great big breakfast, whatever time of the day that looks like to your um, to your listeners and those that are, you know, doing that intense shift work. Mm. So, as a chef, Sam, can you recommend uh, sort of, I guess, maybe your top three shift working uh, nutritional gadgets to make things easier in the kitchen? Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah. You know. Most of the demonstrations that I'm doing now um, in sort of the, I guess, the, the chef shows that I do, I use my beautiful appliances that I'm happily sponsored by and, and from my lovely friends at Breville. But I also use a lot of handheld equipment and one of them is a mandolin, which is like a little paddle with a razor blade. 
that's obviously not as sharp, but it's super sharp. And it just means that you can shave parmesan really quickly. You can shave celery, lettuce, um, radishes, apples. You can make a salad in three seconds with a, with a little paddle like that. So I'll send you a link and then you can put that onto your podcast of a picture of a mandolin so it also looks like um in fact the side of your box grater is not dissimilar that's the blade that you never use uh-huh. most people use a cheese grater or yeah. a whatever a citrus grater but they don't use the blade on the side and that blade on the side can cut vegetables so quickly for you that before you know it you'll have you'll have a beautiful salad there the other thing of course is either a handheld blender like a the old-fashioned bar mix or a stick blender as we call them, to make dressings in advance. Your shift workers can be making an oil, vinegar, mustard, honey, lemon juice dressing and mix that up in a, in a blender of some sort and then put that into a jar and refrigerate it. So you've always got a salad dressing there and maybe making another little dressing in a small, you know, whisk or another handheld stick uh, blender that you can do, you know, other dressings like miso, which is a Japanese fermented soy um, bean paste, and tamari and honey. So you've got a, a sauce for quickly grilled chicken and that kind of thing. So there's so much you can do, you know, just with the handheld appliances to make life easier. But the trick is really to have dressings, sauces, and seasonings all ready to go. So that piece of steamed fish or a bit of roasted chook always tastes fabulous. Oh, that's there. They're great tips, Sam. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, they're the key takeaways that most people, you know, they tell me they're so tired to cook, but really if they just have a couple of handheld um, utensils and maybe something that's easy and electric to sit on the on the countertop, like a great vitamizer, something like that, then they'll tend to use it as well. It just needs a little bit of forward thinking. Mm, just to kind of help lure us back into the kitchen um, <laughs> to if it, if it makes it if we know that it's going to make things so much easier and quicker for us then it's certainly a lot more appealing um, you know when you when you don't have um, much sleep and obviously yeah the preparation in advance is is key as you mentioned I think uh, you know it, it's about if you're doing say four nights or whatever just do your do you forget about doing a prep and doing the whole thing again on your first couple of days wait till you feel well again on a good day off and get stuck back into the kitchen and and yeah do the that sort of all you know pre-preparation kind of stuff because it yeah it certainly that's, helps in the that's right you know it's about having a healthy relationship with your kitchen mm, and food yeah, and nice yep I, I i can say that happily because i taught a cooking class here at, at, at in byron bay on sunday and my pantry was exploding <laughs> and yesterday i was like right you know there's one shelf in particular i'm like oh my goodness you know get in there uh, you pull everything out and I know it sounds arduous but it's such a great thing to do for this time of the year leading up to Australia Day or you know February or whatever in January if you can really clean out your fridge clean out your kitchen I know some of you are exhausted but I can guarantee you'll get so much more energy if you know what's in your pantry you throw out all the mixed spice from you know 2005 or whatever <laughs> sticking around there I found some you know some organic drinking chocolate that that have been buried there for a couple of years over <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, I have a bit of red palm oil, which is a healthy oil, not the other, not the naughty palm oil from okay. 2005. So anyway, 
you know, uh, if you can reconnect and reestablish a relationship in the kitchen, that's certainly a positive approach. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Good to hear a chef also doesn't have the perfect um, fridge and pantry 24-7, 365 days of the year. <laughs> so we don't feel quite so bad. Oh, I'm amazed what my chefs have in their kitchen. There's probably a can of VB and uh, a leftover pizza, but um, oh, course, no, mine, yeah. mine's pretty healthy. It's all good. <laughs> Look, um, I was having a bit of a potter around on your website uh, the other day, Sam, and I noticed that you had uh, also spoken at the Global Wellness Summit in 2015 on the topic of superfoods. And I I watched the video or the recording of it and, you know, you were talking about, I love this, how you were saying that, um, you know, there's a term superfoods, but you actually believe that all foods have superpowers and not just the kale. Loved, loved, loved that when you said that. <laughs> uh, can you share more about your research on this? Because this term really is and, uh, you know, continues to be oh so overused in the media and nutritional, you know, world right now. Would you not agree? Oh, absolutely. You know, my, my last research paper for my master's uh, culminated in a topic, a, you know, like a mini thesis called Who Makes a Superfood Super? And in my research, it, I revealed that it was people such as myself being nutritionists and marketers, but ultimately it's the media. Now, if we take something like coconut, which has very little healing property other than the fact that it's hydrating, then we can look at coconut being versatile because, yes, it makes it can have be turned into a milk, a cream, an oil, a water, uh, cosmetics, all sorts of things, or just eaten whole. But it doesn't actually qualify to be a superfood. That's not enough to make it a superfood. It's got to have a very, very high nutrient density. And in the research that I, I pertained, Watercress is actually the number one of 43 foods that were scientifically tested to be the most dense or rich nutrient, dense um, powerhouse food, kale set in the middle. So everywhere, and I've been using watercress for years. I love it from Chinese medicine. It's very bitter. It doesn't last very long because it is a watercress. So it has a tendency to um, reduce and uh, go a little bit manky, which is my technical term. Which means that you used to, you need to buy it in small quantities and use it sparingly, you know, or use it all at once, whatever you need to do. So the superfood myth is really what we're unfolding now. And, you know, there's not a store in Byron Bay, let alone most of oh, the Whole Foods around Australia that are touting cheer to be this and, you know, cacao to be cold-pressed and so forth. And, you know, I also revealed that there's only one cold press of cacao, actual machine that cold-presses the cacao in the whole world. And that that was um, as of last year, and that's in Bali. It's not in South America. So our listeners are probably Mm -hmm. paying way too much for this raw, cold, uh, this raw, not necessarily cold-press, cacao that's coming out of South America, which is sun-dried. And that may that sun may have exceeded 43 degrees. Now, the rule of thumb is that to be sold as a raw food, it has to be under 43 degrees Celsius. 
to be prepared, otherwise it's no longer classified as raw. So, you know, my research was very compelling. It got a little bit um, uh, controversial at times. And I just think that if we focus on, let's say, South American imported powders, um, cereals, grains and, um, and beans, then we're not paying attention to what we have and can harvest and forage here in Australia, like our native seaweeds, our vitamin C, kakadu plum, our native berries, native juniper berries, uh, lemon myrtle, kakadu, kakadu plum, as I've said, and just a whole lot of other beautiful native rose hips, et cetera, et cetera. You know, our Indigenous people are so wise and I think we now it really is time to turn to them for our culinary and nutritional information. Mm, yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. I suppose too, you know, obviously if we're not only supporting, you know, our local um, producers um, and farmers and, and, and so forth as well, but we don't have that, um, you know, the time that the foods are spent in storage um, you know the the travelling time and and so forth as well. So which you know has the potential to impact the nutritional content of foods. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If we look at the food miles, um, what is shelf ripened? What is dock ripened, as I call it? So let's say apricots from Turkey, as an example. How long do they sit in dry dock before they're imported into Australia? Mm. Are they how much fluorescent light do they expose to? Uh, how much mandatory pesticide and herbicide is the conventional product sprayed with and fumigated with both on export out of uh, Turkey or the Middle East or wherever it's coming from and then how long is it in quarantine in Australia and then fumigated again. Mm. And the same goes for Chinese imports, except, you know, all around the world. And what if we could get, you know, our own ingredients, our own Queensland mangoes and so forth, obviously not all year round, and focus on buying our local produce. Now, you know, I'm not saying I do this all the time. I'm a chef and I need to be able to manage uh, food costs and margins and so forth. And, you know, sometimes having an imported piece of fruit from where I shop, particularly for one venue at the moment, is my only choice if I want that to be on that particular menu. But mostly it's about supporting our farmers' markets, our small chain distributors, and looking at what we can access that's locally grown. And for those that grow their own food, of course, that's even better. I'm not in a position at the moment to do that. So I just think we have to be careful about our import. You know, I drink French rosé. I don't always just drink the French stuff, <laughs> but I like it because, ironically, it has less preservative than what a lot of Australian wine does. Mm. if that makes sense, and the yeah. salts and the preservative 220 and 222 mm. really bother me. So I often will buy an imported wine, um, but I'm happy to admit that, you know, no one's yeah. going to come and say, you're drinking French rosé, you're supposed to drink only Australian wine. I'm like, <laughs> oh, for goodness sake, I'm a chef, let me go. You know what I mean? It's more about having that awareness of where yeah. our produce is coming from and not being um, – not holding it to with a big dose of ego, you know. We're really looking at now people celebrate produce and uh, and the provenance of ingredients, and so they should, but it should actually be mandatory, you know. We should, we should know where our produce is coming from and it should go without saying that we're being served kale salad, for example, and the kales come from a grower and not just from a big supermarket if you go to a cafe. Mm. 
Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. A really good um, insight on that. Um, Sam, thank you so much. Uh, just just around before we wrap up the podcast, you were talking about French champagne, so that kind of leads me to my final question, actually. It's a little bit of a... I said, Rosé, you've got champagne on your mind. Oh, That's... did I? Oh. Champagne's always good, girlfriend, absolutely. Oh, see, French <laughs> champagne, it kind of just goes two and two together, really, doesn't it? <laughs> They do. And, uh, <laughs> next time we see each other, we'll have some champagne to celebrate. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Tell me, what were you going to say? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, but. I'm, I'm actually a bit of a mad traveller and um, obviously from my background in the airline industry, but I know you have done a phenomenal amount of travelling and you continue to go, you know, um, doing a lot of uh, travelling, but are you able to narrow it down with all your spots that you visited mm. um, and share with our uh, listeners, uh, you know, what your favourite travel destination is and why? Wow. Okay. You know, that's a tough question for you. <laughs> you know, it's it's a tough question. I have to say New York City oh. and I, I, I know I can say, you know, most recently the Maldives where I was um, last May, uh, I think it was, and the Maldives over there, way over there, the far end of the Indian Ocean are absolutely spectacular. But after nine years of living here in paradise in Byron Bay, I love a great beach destination, but I do live pretty much on one. So for me, travel at the moment, I haven't done a lot of Europe as yet, and I hope that that will manifest as well. But New York City, my oldest, dearest school friend lives in New York. She's done there, done that in the same apartment for about 20 years. And there's just a vibrancy, you know. Obviously, from a food perspective, I just love it. I love the energy. I love the music, the live music, the history. I also love San Francisco. That was my first real independent adventure into a food city outside mm. of Melbourne. And that was and continues to be life-changing. I feel a real resonance when I go to San Francisco. Um, and then, of course, there's Asia. I've spent a lot of time in Ubud, um, in Bali, in, in Ubud in particular with my friend Janet Deneef, who has had restaurants and got a cooking school there for probably nearly 30 years. So that's always been a destination. Um, a little bit overrun now, Bali. It's kind of got a little bit more upmarket. I'm sure some of your listeners will know Bali very intimately as well and that's probably not my immediate destination anymore. But, you know, give me a beach. <laughs> Give me some Southeast Asian food and uh, a beautiful sunset and I'm pretty happy, darling. Otherwise, I'll take the big city. I'll take the big apple whenever I can chew on it. <laughs> and not just a little big city, the big, big city, the New big York. City. <laughs> that's right, exactly. <laughs> New York, New York. That's that's a really interesting response, Sam, because I've spoken to a few other people that are, that are quite well-travelled. One of mine was a... a a former workmate, and he's been all over the globe, and his favourite spot was Coolangatta. <laughs> also, yeah, believe it or not, this guy's been Isn't everywhere. Yeah, and then I've also spoken to your friend and, and um, fellow Byron Bay um, is the beautiful Jules Galloway, and she answered the same thing. You know, I'm, I'm living in paradise, you know, so something yeah. similar, you know, to the beach. So it's really interesting, uh, you know, how we can just, you know, it's the simple things, you know, a lot of the time that, um, you know, can can and, and have the most, um, you know, wonderful experiences. So, yeah, well, that's yeah. great. But I haven't been yeah. to the Maldives, so, and I have a girlfriend that's went there recently and it looks 
beautiful. Oh, look, it is stunning. And I was working there. I went over there as a guest chef and I arrived in the middle of the night. Three, two big planes, a tiny little plane and a tiny little boat. <laughs> Bumpity bump, bump, bump. And I, you know, I've had an experience like that in the South China Sea also about 20 years earlier where I was taken to a, you know, far-flung island or an atoll in this case. And I hung onto the boat. I was the only passenger. And I thought, you know what? If this is it, it's not a bad way to go. And I'm no pessimist, I can assure you, but it's like, okay, if it all goes pear-shaped, I go belly up, then at least I've been on an adventure, on a voyage, and, um, you know, it's not too shabby. At least I'm, I'm going to die what I do, what I love doing, and that's uh, crossing an open water. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. That's, that's so funny. Yeah, I love it. But, yeah, fortunately, the, the, the uh, boat was um, – Seaworthy, so you made it to where you need. I made it, and you know, and they they checked me into my villa, and it was about two thirty a.m. their time. So God knows what time it was, you know, from Byron Bay. But I woke up in this incredible villa, and I raised the blind, the curtain, whatever, and there is that. Um, famous greeny blue aquamarine colour of the Maldives and I was in one of those um, amazing villas built out onto the sea there onto the atoll and I had I weeped I was like oh my Mm. goodness if only my partner could be here with me you know Mm. it's um the pinch yourself moments and you know it's about manifesting a life that you love to live and for me the work I do even when it's long hours you know I'm not always as rosy sometimes I'm a bit grumpy from doing dishes and whatever but ultimately you know this is my life and I chose to manifest it in this way Mm, and yeah and a lot of hard work has certainly led you to that moment so yeah well look thanks so much um, for chatting uh, with me Sam it's been a heaps of fun Um, where can people find um, more to learn about your books your cooking classes uh, mentoring and and all the other services that you offer because you do a lot of stuff I do, and I know every every year I try and consolidate a little bit more. Or I lose a little bit of interest in a system that I've been offering, and and really hone my skills. And at the moment, I'm really honing that um, the the cooking and the nutrition is the core of the business. Yes, I mentor people, and I absolutely love that. I help them self publish and uh, do so many different things. But ultimately, it's about helping people discover their absolute individual unique gift. And I do that through the various services. And you'll be able to find all of that information at foodhealthwealth.com. So the cooking classes, the mentoring programs, the corporate team building events, and uh, the various um, tailored programs who write for luxury hotels and spas and health retreats around the world. You'll find it all there or, or on Facebook if that's easier for you, food, uh, Facebook forward slash foodhealthwealth. Wonderful. Well, I'll make sure that um, to include all of the links um, at the you. yeah at the end of the um the, in the show notes uh, of the podcast, including the one of the the mandolin as well. Um, yes, yes, you, right that, now. Yeah, that you mentioned as well. So uh, yeah, I'm sure there'll be um, some listeners, you know quite intrigued about cooking classes even I just had had a bit of a thought there that there might be a, a, 
a group of I don't know a group of nurses or or oh, in some please. workplace that might kind yeah. of go oh let's all book in and do a you know a heap yeah. of us do a session with um with Sam because that would I yeah. think that would be a, a lot of fun and I think because I think that comes to the crux of it we need to be getting people back into the kitchen and and finding their mojo again even when they're tired but I'm sure that um, you'd be able to definitely help um, in that department that's for sure. Certainly. I take small groups of up to six um, okay. in private consults in yep. Byron Bay, yep. um, which is sometimes a little bit more cost effective for our listeners. Hmm. Otherwise, we come to you. Um, so if you've got an, a, a premises that you want to do a corporate team building event, then we can do that as well. But if you've got six girlfriends or boyfriends, whatever, and you want to come down to Byron um, off peak, so it doesn't have to be a Saturday morning or anything, it can be a Thursday afternoon, then I'd love to host you for a two to three hour class as well. So lots of fun. And you can look for, you can find all that information also for those that are listening on TripAdvisor if you find byronbaycookingschool.com. Wonderful. Uh, oh, sorry, Byron Bay Cooking School on TripAdvisor, yeah. Yeah, wonderful. I might actually have to round up some of my nutritional student, fellow uni students too and to yeah, look in and come down sure. and see you. Yeah. Well, look, thank you so much uh, for joining me today, Sam, and for sharing some of your chefing and nutritional wisdom. It's been a real delight to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Order, and wishing you all a very happy and prosperous new year and the best is yet to come. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's it for another edition of the Healthy Shift Worker podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback and there are many ways you can do this via my Facebook page, The Healthy Shift Worker, through my website, healthyshiftworker.com, or you can visit The Wellness Couch at thewellnesscouch.com and leave a comment there. If you enjoyed the show, please feel free to share it with other shift workers who you think may benefit, or you can leave us a five-star rating on iTunes, which will help me to spread the healthy shift worker message to shift workers and organizations all around the world. If you'd like access to more free resources, including my newsletter, just visit my website, healthyshiftworker.com and enter your name and email address. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening. Until next time, may you continue to be as healthy as you possibly can be, despite working 24-7. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.